Welcome to Get Your Fix, a podcast bringing you insights and expertise in facilities management, brought to you by Vixo, changing the way the world sees facilities management. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Get Your Fix, a Vixo podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the podcast. I'd like to point you in a few directions before we jump into the main conversation so that you're getting all of your Vixo content. To get more episodes of Get Your Fix and other Vixo content, make sure you're going to our website at vixo.com. Again, V-I-X-X-O.com. You can also find our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just hit that subscribe button and then you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations as well as notifications when we drop upcoming episodes. So on today's episode of the show, we're taking the time to understand what is creating the most consistent and challenging issues for procurers across key verticals. We're going to break down procurement challenges for a few different key industries, including restaurant, retail, convenience, and grocery. We're going to chat about how these issues have been intensified by the COVID-19 pandemic, And we're going to try to connect the dots to see how robust data analysis can help procurers tackle these challenges. So for insights, I'd like to welcome our two guests today, Michael Sutherland. He's the Vice President of Solutions Architecture at Vixo, as well as Rick Upton, Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Vixo as well. Michael, Rick, great to have you both on. How are y'all doing? Very well, Daniel. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Thank you, Daniel. Absolutely. Looking forward to breaking this down. Our Vixo conversations, uh, where we spend some time unpacking each industry, I think are really fruitful because we really get to see how these dynamics are manifesting for different environments, even if on the surface, they're slightly similar and procuring for restaurants versus uh, convenience stores and retailers all have unique differences that are worth a broader discussion. So I'm looking forward to breaking those down with you. Let's go ahead and jump in. But we're going to start a little bit more generally to paint a bigger picture of changes in procurement today. So in general, what are the shifting market dynamics or technologies or supply chain factors that y'all are seeing changing procurement work across industries? And why are those the main dynamics today? Well, I think the first thing that we're hearing from the procurement individuals is a more diverse and broader capability across a number of trades. There's a lot of complexity that everyone is dealing with. Everyone has a growing uh, workload with continuing cuts, and they're trying to do more with less. And so they're looking for service providers that can do a lot of different solutions for that company that they're procuring for. Michael, is, is that what you have seen? Yeah, I see procurers, Rick, taking on uh, more and more categories. So where they have may have been on the resale side, now potentially they are focusing on the not-for-resale side. Uh, so instead of buying goods and services and, and fixtures, they now are challenged with whole new categories. The procurers that we've worked with, they're, they're definitely up to the challenge and they're looking for guidance. Yeah, I think expertise is always going to be the resounding factor that procurers are looking for so that whatever company they partner with can provide solutions, not necessarily for the individual challenge that the retailer is looking to solve for, 
but also to be a trusted advisor for any other problems, COVID-like challenges that are awaiting us down the road. If you had to describe some of the changes to day-to-day procurement work, uh, what would those be and how are they impacting the procurement professionals in these industries? How are they adapting to some of these changes? Over the past few years, I think there's been a huge proliferation of digital tools that support the procurer. So the whether it's Ariba or Coupa or any number of uh, digital modes that they can put RFPs out and get good hard data back in. Uh, the need to deliver savings is, of course, paramount for the procurers. So they need to come up with good, solid evaluation criteria to be able to synthesize all that data that's coming back in from these these expanded tools and be able to recommend changes to the business that are going to have the impact that they need, that, that cost savings. So I see procurers really being challenged to, to measure the whole picture uh, rather than just limit it to, you know, an hourly rate and trip charge and, and materials markup. I don't know. What do, you, what do you see, Rick? How does that tie in for you? I've, I've seen that as well. Thinking back when RFPs became or were becoming the go-to mechanism uh, to choose suppliers, it was a very cut and dry process. Tool-specific, rigid guidelines, get your pricing in a certain box, check all the details and submit. Now I see a little bit more requests for creativity and how might you approach this challenge differently? We've had more than one occasion where a prospective customer has come to us with a fairly rigid structure. And then after the first round of pricing exercise have come back to us to say, well, if we were to take the boundaries off or allow you to color outside the lines, how would you do this differently? What creative solutions have you possibly used in the marketplace that could benefit us? Do you have any examples just to sort of ground some of those changes of speaking with procurement professionals and really any of the industries you work in and hearing some of those challenges directly from them? How are they vocalizing them? You know, what are they quite literally saying is making their work difficult today? And, you know, feel free to link that to some specific examples if you'd like. Well, we had an example recently where the RFP came out with a very structured set of guidelines. And as I alluded to earlier, we had to fit the pricing in the proper box. But now uh, customers are coming back to us and saying, how would you do this differently in terms of, let's step back away simply from pricing, but focus on the bigger picture in terms of how do I improve quality? How do I reduce trips? And how do I lower my costs? How might you do this differently? not with maybe a traditional solution with a particular set of trades, but how might we set up more of a partnership that you, the supplier, helping our reduced staff try and get at the ultimate results measures around quality and speed and uh, cost controls and giving them a more creative solution than simply, here's my trip charge, here's my labor rates. Yeah, I'd agree, Rick. We're, we're definitely seeing a little bit more experimentation from procurers now too, maybe as a result of their continued consult with their operators or their facilities teams. So that we're seeing not just the, the traditional variables of, again, labor and, and trip and markups and things like that, but we're starting to 
Finally, C, procurers assess things like duration and, and total cost. And even on the back end, we believe that they're starting to take into account the critical elements of what support costs may I be able to offset. So what are the, uh, the operational or opportunities within my organization to potentially shed the responsibility for something as simple as invoice auditing and, and payment to a, a potential service partner? Yeah, that's right, Michael. I think you make a good point in terms of challenging the traditional roles or responsibilities between the customer and the vendor and how how we approach lowering overall costs, improving overall quality through the work that we provide. I'd, I'd offer another example. Uh, recently, that we had a we received an RFP and the scopes of work that were outlined there were really really elaborate. And for, for years, we would receive RFPs and everything would be kind of like perfectly articulated out. Well, what I had before is exactly what I want tomorrow. And we're starting to see more of a request for, okay, give us the price for the, the base, exactly what we're asking for, but tell us if there's a better way to do it. Tell us if there's a more cost-effective way to do it or a way that would uh, improve our brand standing. And we believe that those RFPs are the ones where procurers are able to really establish themselves as partners to their operators and facilities teams. Michael, do you think that that could be the pattern going forward? That in a traditional RFP scenario, you have a box, you fill in your pricing, your terms and conditions, and may the best vendor win. Maybe going forward, it is those fundamental boxes that you're filling in to get to that second round. And then you open it up to a more creative process. In essence, you have winnowed the field down to your most creative, more, most innovative, your strongest partners, and then see where the solution takes you from there and make the ultimate selection at that point. Yeah, I would love to see that be kind of a growing direction for the future, Rick. I think the the challenge is, and I'm a recovering procurer myself, is that you, you need parity. Everybody's got to be bidding on the same stuff so that you can effectively evaluate those bids between proponents. So if you don't have parity and if people are bidding on, on different scopes of work, yeah, it, there, there's no way to, to fairly evaluate them. But by incorporating kind of a standard scope or a baseline and then saying, how would you do it? Uh, I, I think you get a much better result. The other thing that I would like to see, Rick, is in the future is that the procurers share more data about, uh, and at a more detailed level, frankly, about the type of work that's been performed, about the volumes that they've seen, uh, not just at a summary, but at a detail level so that we as uh, participants in that RFP can analyze that historic spend or volume and be able to say, look, if you did it this creative or innovative way, if you did a little bit different, here's the true net impact on your organization. That's what I believe the things are headed to because we have more and more data, not only that the procurers are collecting through the RFP process, but also that the operators have collected through their management systems and, and work order platforms. So by sharing that pretty liberally in, in the RFP process, I think they're getting a better result. Do you think the conditions at these companies would allow a greater partnership? Or do you see them as being more guarded? 
Mm. Yeah, that that is a good question. What do y'all think? I'm debating the response there. So, <laughs> yeah, as to be an effective negotiator, you have to hold some cards back and procurers are are often some of the most effective negotiators there. So, striking a really fine line between being guarded and sharing enough information that it helps you achieve the result that you want, which for the procurer is often cost savings and stability. I think there's a really fine balance there. Procurers typically don't want to share baseline cost information uh, because that you know kind of forms like a maximum common denominator. However, they have been more and more willing to share things like volume and work order detail so that uh, we can come up with a uh, we can effectively estimate the impact of the changes that we might make to the program uh, and, and how we better deliver those results that they need. Certainly, Vixo has had some terrific opportunities at forming partnerships with uh, our customers. We've got several that are 10 years plus of having a working relationship while during that time going through RFP exercises to renew our commitment uh, refresh our pricing, so to speak, but it has allowed for us to maintain the momentum of innovation and uh, a collaborative improvement on how we solve their uh, retail challenges. That's the breakthrough that I think procurement has to recognize and look and work with their operational partners. That can they build that sustained partnership so that these investments in innovative solutions can really be measured on a fair and consistent long-term basis. All right, let's go ahead and dig into the specific verticals we had lined up for today to understand how these challenges that are impacting procurement operations are differentiating slightly between all the different verticals. So again, the main verticals we're breaking down today are grocery, convenience, retail, and restaurant. So let's go ahead and start with the grocery industry. What do you all see as the main challenges procurers are facing in that vertical? And how do they intersect with everything from uh, equipment to diversity of products? The driving innovation in grocery is the growing variety of offerings that they're putting in front of their, uh, their customers. Grocery is not simply a uh, dry goods and produce a shopping experience. It is a uh, it's a full retail experience from dining, uh, ready to eat foods, curbside delivery, home delivery. It's a very challenging environment now. And so I think one of the focuses that they're looking at from their supplier base is experience in these different channels of delivering service to their customers. What does the vendor bring with them in experiences in uh, these different modes of customer fulfillment? And can they bring uh, innovation from systems and technology to help those customers innovate themselves? You, you see all of the different modes of delivery that groceries now being challenged with, certainly they can't rely upon that or should not rely upon them coming up with all of those answers. They are looking for their vendor base to help provide those solutions. I would agree with that. I think grocers are faced with Enormous procurement challenges that are spilling over into facilities, certainly. Um, when we start to combine the impact of the, the pandemic here, and we start to consider that the diversity of the products that are sitting on their shelves are changing. So in some cases, they're winnowing down and in others, 
other category types, they're expanding dramatically. They've had to completely reconfigure the way they sell fresh food. So I think procurers are, are moving with a very rapidly changing and somewhat uncertain landscape when it comes to actually delivering product at this point or actually delivering their core product, which are our foodstuffs, to their customers. In one case, uh, if I look two years back, the procurement team was trying to find the right piece of equipment to sell uh, and display rotisserie chickens. Now, the notion of displaying a rotisserie chicken is completely off the books. So all the investment that they made in the equipment for display purposes and, um, and cooking delivery purposes, now they, they're re-looking at that and saying, okay, if I don't need to display anymore, if I just need to cook and then wrap, it's a different product, a different piece of equipment that I have to have out there. So they're really trying to very quickly determine what's the long-term product or equipment configuration to match an ever-changing basically portfolio of foodstuffs that I need to present. And then relying upon their vendor base to be able to flexibly shift to provide the services, supports, and parts to support that initiative. Correct. I think they're challenged to rather than get locked into one 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 very discreet and insular service provider who maybe can only perform work on Hobart systems or multisseries. Um, they, they need to partner with folks that have a, a much broader diversity of like skills and ASC availability to be able to serve what is at this point uncertain future product line. Yeah, right. It relates back to the initial points we were making in terms of relying on fewer, stronger suppliers to support a broader base of challenges and equipment types for the customer. All right, let's move on to the next vertical. And as we go, I'll have y'all sort of retroactively link each vertical back to some of the previous ones we've talked on, just so we get that holistic picture. But our next vertical is the convenience store vertical. What are some of the ways procurers are being challenged in this industry today? And are there certain aspects to fuel and beverage equipment and to the kind of expansion and product diversity that they've been seeing in their industry, adding more fresh meals and really stepping up what a convenience store even offers that have uh, you know, put procurers to the test? Break it all down for us. You look at the change in grocery and the canvas on which they have to paint and compare that to the innovation that's going on at CNG and this footprint of the typical CNG store, that's a challenge. So CNG is effectively trying to do as much, if not more, to that, that consumer event that grocery is doing, but at a much more challenging logistical scale. So they are doing curbside, they are doing home delivery, they're expanding food and beverage options, uh, increasing their availability of uh, other products like, uh, like wine and alcohol in a very small box. So that, that is, uh, there is a lot going on inside that small CNG box these days. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there, Rick. Our convenience partners have the luxury of being at like premium geographies, right? So they're on the correct side of the street and people are leveraging the easy in and out 
associated with their local convenience store versus potentially going into the grocery store just to pick up a couple things. They're now going into the convenience store. So the convenience procurers are challenged with actually an ever-expanding diversity of products that they need to stock and equipment to service that. So in some areas, they're scaling back, like the self-serve beverage equipment we're seeing be scaled back. So getting service on those may be less of an issue in the future. But the need for refrigerated open air cases is greater than ever before because those prepackaged sandwiches and like one-hit meals, those are flying off shelves. So being able to put the right equipment in place and have the right partner to be able to address like the holistic equipment and product changes is really uh, really important to procurers for the convenience space. Michael, what would you see as the innovations that driving at fuel dispensing? What have you seen the consumers demand and how some CNG customers have have tried to meet that quest? Uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, demand is way down because we're just driving less right now, although that is certainly not going to be the case forever. So you're seeing those point of purchase areas. You're seeing more like digital interface and, and marketing resale even on those dispensers than you've ever seen before. You're seeing the ability to, you've always kind of had the ability to add stuff like a car wash. And now they're advertising, you know, the gallon of milk right there. So being able to catch up and stay consistent with the latest dispensing trends and being able to link that back to basically an overall marketing product plan is, is important. And the infrastructure on the forecourt on the gas island needs to be able to support that. So procurers are doing everything from uh, buying hanging hardware as, as effectively as possible. Maybe even having that hanging hardware, the hoses and breakaways swapped out by store personnel versus having it done by, by uh, service contractors. They're starting to get creative in their solutions that aren't just by the product, by the part, by the service, but how can I impact the, the station experience as a whole? Yeah, I see that point of fuel dispensing very much like the point of sale interface. How do I make this as touchless as possible? I've seen some brands going back to full service so that the customer literally doesn't even have to get out of the car, doesn't even have to expose themselves to that environment. And then there's some prepaid technology, which is uh, hitting the streets today to be able to at least reduce the amount of interaction you have to do with that pump if it's self-serve to just simply uh, dispense in the fuel, but not having to interact with the key uh, touchpad whatsoever. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a really great point, Rick. How does the equipment in store and any of the complexity for servicing it compare to equipment that you would find in a grocery store? Because I think there is a lot of overlap, but are there any areas where specifically working with convenience store equipment adds an extra layer of challenge, at least in store? I think the, the food prep in a grocery store is, is pretty much always, always behind the counter. So it, it is being prepared and delivered in a packaged capacity to the consumer, whereas the the food service, some of it in a convenience store, maybe behind the counter, but the convenience store, the customer is often interacting a lot more with the equipment directly. So you've got 
a much higher chance of whether it's customer abuse or just normal wear and tear from having the general public interact with the equipment so that there's a higher degree of maintenance associated with anything that customers handle uh, than there is with something that just employees handle. So they need to take that into account. I find it interesting that for years, the whole focus around CNG was to get the customer in the store at all. Most customer visits to a CNG was simply to pump gas and leave. For years, have tried to improve lighting, curb appeal, merchandising, signage, anything to get the consumer inside the store. Whereas grocery, all of the perimeter displays, all of the added uh, amenities like wine bars and uh, salad bars, fresh prepared foods, They've, they've got the consumer in the, in the box in the store. Now, how do we keep them longer? How do, how do we get them to walk more of the store? That focus has now shifted a bit, whereas CNG is trying to draw customers inside the store because it now may be a matter of necessity that I want to do a quick stop, get the essentials, get back in my car and go back home. I don't want to go in the grocery store. I just want to make this a single trip, one exposure to uh, the rest of society, and I want to get everything done. And so it's been an interesting shift to how CNG has has tried to not only get folks inside the store, but also now for them to take care of more and more of their necessities, more of their items on the to-do list when they make that one stop. And grocery has now reversed the trend to say, all right, how do I bring the store now to the customer? I've conceded that they're not going to come in. They don't want to expose themselves. They want to receive it delivered. They want to receive it uh, bagged in a curbside pickup. So it's an interesting dynamic that we've just seen in the past, say, year and a half. Yeah, there was a really great article published just recently in the New York Times about, I think it was seven ways the pandemic changed how we, we shop for food. And the statistics that it cited were that the cart size, so the total purchase size has gone way up and stayed way up. And the frequency of each individual shopper's visit has gone way down. So maybe the early hoarding behavior that we saw, uh, people are going once a week now instead of going on the way home from work. But what they're doing to supplement in between, they're making lists like they've never made before, but they're also using and leveraging those local convenience stores to, to pick up the stuff that might be missed. So the two hmm. industries are they're interacting significantly. Let's bring in a third vertical then. We're going to chat about retail now. So by retail, uh, I guess we can maybe bring up examples that don't have food as an option for their products that might uh, help differentiate specifically the products and equipment procurement that are challenging procurement professionals in retail today. But yeah, what are some of the different ways that you're seeing retail procurers deal with their own set of challenges? And what are some of the unique ways that retail is putting pressure on them. So out of all of the industries that, that we're talking about, retail is, is just hit incredibly hard with the recessional impacts of the pandemic. So I think procurers are coming in as portfolios, entire store portfolios are being rationalized. So where maybe they were buying 10,000 hours of handyman services before, they may only be buying 5,000 in the future 
So I believe procurers are going to be pressured, if not now, then very soon to put programs back out for bid to be able to try and eke out some of that cost savings, especially as the pandemic certainly disrupted many of their long-term labor agreements with their service partners. Right. Rick, what are you seeing? Uh, In a phrase, they are trying to shift from fixed to variable as quickly as they possibly can. We've had retailers who have prided themselves on the level of care and staffing dedicated to optimizing that shopping experience, proud of how they are rated amongst consumers for that shopping experience, but now faced with dire financial challenges are opening themselves up to brand new solutions, different ways to serve the customer, leveraging their vendor base at a more um, integrated way to lower their costs uh, and maintain or possibly improve service. And the final vertical that I wanted to mention is the restaurant vertical. I feel like the restaurant vertical for procurers intersects a lot of the previous one's challenges and then uh, sort of gives them their own spin. So go ahead and break down where procurers are struggling within the restaurant space. Are they facing the same kind of cost pressure that retailers are? Are they dealing with the same sort of uh, technical equipment specs that convenience store operators are? Break it down for us. Well, certainly they're, they're facing the same cultural challenges that the other verticals that we had mentioned earlier. However, there's certainly a base level of demand, and you've seen it in municipalities who have loosened COVID restrictions. And the first thing that explodes is dining, for better or for worse. People will take risks against CDC guidelines just to get out of the house and have a meal with their uh, their loved ones. And so they have this base level of demand, which they can count on. Now it's a matter of really optimizing that space, their delivery service, again, going to a more omni-channel solution to try and fulfill the demand that is out there. If you want to eat out, if you want that dining experience, there's really no other way to get around it, which is not the case in these other three verticals that we talked about. But it's certainly they're going to have to be very creative about communicating a message to their patron that their environment is of the cleanest and most sanitary environment possible. So what we have found is that not only is the technology and the process is important, but also the communication to the patron that they can count on the cleanliness and the level of detail that the operators are applying to that restaurant so they feel safe and comfortable. I think that's a great point. I also see, Rick, that restaurants are uh, dramatically skinning down actually their product options. So when I contrast it with the other verticals, you've got retailers skidding down their portfolio. You've got grocers shifting the product lines that they're carrying. You've got convenience stores trying to carry more. And then you've got restaurants now kind of skidding down their menus. So great examples, look at McDonald's pulled all day breakfast, uh, Taco Bell pulled you know, every potato product off of their menu. So with that comes equipment that gets phased out or potentially used differently. And that's going to have long-term maintenance repercussions. You know, you figure if you're not maintaining that equipment or if it doesn't require that dedicated counter space, now you can either repurpose that 
or you can certainly absolutely can repurpose the maintenance dollars associated with that equipment. You've also got them really trying to figure out how do I effectively reconfigure my booths, my tables, my, my lighting, and certainly my HVAC systems to be able to better circulate air. Um, that's probably the biggest push that we see for procurers right now across uh, all of our restaurant clients is they're all trying to improve air quality to introduce technologies, uh, antimicrobial blades and whatnot that will, will remove virus particles from, from the air. Um, and we're seeing substantial investments made and tests and full rollouts already in, in equipment and programs like that that are going to have long-term repair and maintenance repercussions as well. Yeah, that's a great point, Michael. Uh, as you know, we have some technology that we've introduced to a number of customers, not just restaurants, to address that microbial exposure and the supporting merchandising to give customers that sense of confidence that they can come in and dine and, and be comfortable. And then there's the area of restaurants and the, the amount of remodels and makeovers that we've done there to, again, change the basic equipment uh, support systems and restrooms that meet today's concerns and, again, make patrons feel that much more comfortable. All right. So that's a good, solid breakdown of the main challenges procurers are facing in grocery, convenience, retail, and restaurant verticals. So let's go ahead and wrap the podcast by sort of answering the question, now what, right? These are all major challenges and COVID has accelerated them in many instances. So what can procurement professionals begin to do to get on top of these challenges? How should they begin to strategize and you know, better understand the landscape they're dealing with? I think what is going to be most important in the procurer's mind, as we mentioned earlier, is it's not just a simple matter today of providing a piece of equipment or the service to repair that equipment. It's now broader capabilities given the, the constraints on infrastructure at the customer's level. How many people do you have now that are managing the vendors? It's now looking for service and product partners that have the depth and diversity and capability to offer a wide range of solutions as the next COVID comes rolling down the street. You're not quite sure what that challenge is going to be, but clearly you want a stable of partners that can effectively react with the technology procedures to keep you open and operating profitably. I guess I would offer any procurer who's listening maybe three points. The first being, you know, be as transparent about your objectives and what you're trying to accomplish as possible through any RFP because your your proponents, your respondents are are going to make sure that we work with you to meet those objectives. The second would be to share as much data as possible. So if you've got historic run rates or projections as to what it'll look like in the future, share that and it'll, it'll certainly help your participants get a full understanding of the work that you're looking to be performed as well as potentially craft a, an alternate solution. And on that alternate solution, um, my, my third point would be to, you know, ask for suggestions. So it'd be one thing to say, this is exactly what we need and how it was done. And this is the way that we're going to evaluate it. But your partners can be very creative and uh, innovative in the way that they solve a, 
a maintenance or service or equipment problem. So ask them for their suggestions and use that their potential to innovate and partner with you as part of your evaluation criteria. Yeah, great point, Michael. I, I can't support or emphasize more that willing to partner with your supplier base for the best innovation technology that's available out there. And finally, what are the key metrics you've found procurement professionals need to oversee and turn to as points of analysis for how to actionably uh, improve their procurement processes and operations? Well, it's always been about baseline cost versus projected future cost. And what I would suggest to procurers is be more holistic in your assessment of the baseline and take into account not only the impact of labor and trip and the, the easiest things to measure, but the organizational resource and structure that might be able to change and the, the favorable impact that you can get by maybe removing or adjusting some, some fixed costs that are potentially outside the R&M line and turn them into variable costs that might sit within the R&M line. We've seen great benefit of that. So take a total cost approach when you look at the baseline, not just a, a unit cost approach, which is typically the easiest way to measure things. That's a great suggestion, Michael. We've, we've seen few, few examples of that where a procurement organization has certainly asked for labor rates and trip charges, material costs and such, but then have also offered for this typical repair, what would the total cost of repair be, including all of those elements? So that while someone may have a $20 an hour disadvantage from a labor rate standpoint, if they're able to effectively repair the item in as little as you know one hour's less time, that labor rate cost disadvantage is neutralized. That's great, Rick, because some of it also comes across in the narrative. So asking questions like, how do you control duration? How do you validate the core cost of materials before the markup? So what are the processes and procedures that partners use to be able to keep those key factors of uh, transactional costs down? That's right. And case studies is the best way to ask for those examples. Sure, you can write a narrative, but if you could present a cost uh, savings case study, with existing customers, that holds just a lot of value with procurement. All right, Michael, Rick, thank you both so much for breaking down this holistic view of what is impacting procurement professionals and their work across varying industries. Again, Michael Sutherland is the VP of Solutions Architecture at Vixo, and Rick Upton is the Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Vixo. Michael and Rick, if folks want to find out more about the work that Vixo is doing in this space uh, and potentially get in touch, how can they do so? You very easily go to Vixo.com and there you can find us on the Contact Us page, submit a request, a question, and uh, we'll respond back promptly with an invitation to learn more. Sounds great. Michael, Rick, thank you both so much for joining us. And I'm looking forward to chatting with both of you again soon on the podcast. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. Be safe and well. 
And thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Get Your Fix, a Vixo podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure that you're going to vixo.com, again, vixo.com, for more information on solutions and services, and of course, a full catalog of previous episodes and other pieces of content. You can find that same catalog of episodes on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well. Make sure you're hitting subscribe there and getting notified when we release new episodes of the show. And make sure you're leaving a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.